travel providers are the backbone of the travel experience. In this brand new season of Powering Travel, we'll dive into industry trends, hot topics, and actionable advice to help business leaders continue evolving and enhancing the travel experience one trip at a time. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Powering Travel Podcast. This week, we are bringing you a topic that is meant to pull the curtain back on the entities on the ground at the local level that are making travel possible, destination organizations. From marketing attractions to supporting travel providers, the work of a destination organization is vast. Think of any city you visited in the last year. That destination has a group of folks working hard to ensure that you can get there with ease, find the right accommodations, while also making sure that the local communities are seeing the positive effects of tourism. Joining me in my co-pilot seat is someone who is deeply familiar with the work of the destination organization, Andy Vanderfeltz, the Global Senior Director of Business Development for Expedia Group Media Solutions. Andy, thanks for joining and go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background. Thank you for inviting me up here in the co-pilot seat. Yes, you're right. A couple of decades of working with DMOs in various parts of the world. But for the last seven years now with Expedia Media Solutions, working closely with DMOs and watching them as they've been evolving. So I'm really excited to be having this conversation with Andreas today and finding a little bit more about what the future holds for destination organizations or destination management organizations in particular. The guest we have for you today is living and breathing destination advocacy every day. He's even got a podcast about it. He is knee deep in destination advocacy. Andreas Weissenborn, Vice President of Research and Advocacy at Destinations International, a global association that equips destination organizations to positively impact local communities. We're going to talk about his journey. It started off with an internship with Visit Baltimore. And he has continued that into an illustrious career that he shares with us, working very closely with destination organizations. His podcast, Architects of Destination Advocacy, is the podcast for professionals in the tourism sector, and it features stories focused on tackling the biggest issues in the industry. So now, without further ado, we're not going to make you wait for it. Here is our interview, Andreas Weisenborn. I've got to start with like my open question here is, you know, I saw that you put a random application for an internship and this led you to the world of hospitality. So give us a little bit more about how you got started into travel and then how you've uh, begun a career and really continued a career uh, with Visit Baltimore. Sure. Absolutely. And thank you for having me, Brandon. Yeah. Starting point was like a lot of folks in travel and tourism was you don't plan to end up in travel and tourism. I was a very young millennial at the time. So this has been right around 05, 06 recognized college kind of wasn't my thing. I was trying to get out as fast as possible and recognized my college at a career center for internships in the area. And this was in the Baltimore area. So I just started applying to as many internships as possible because I would get credit for it for college. So less time in college, more time just working, doing my own thing in my time. And I remember it used to be back in the day, it was just like a physical bulletin board of like paper tearaways. And one of them was at the time was for the local uh, DMO at was then named uh, the Baltimore Convention and Visitor Association, now known as Visit Baltimore. I think I sent out like eight or 10 applications, uh, various other tech companies and stuff like that. And Visit Baltimore, a for the time, was the only one that called back. And sort of that's the rest is history. That's pretty incredible. I totally agree on the piece around like a lot of people just find themselves in travel. Andy, let's talk about your journey into travel. How did you get into the travel business? So this is all about Andreas, Brandon. Yeah, nice, uh, nice clip. <laughs> We're <there>. rounding it out. 
I recognize myself in what Andreas is saying there. I um I was looking for a summer job and for it wasn't it wasn't even an internship and I applied to the Scottish Tourism Board, S C B as it was known then, and got a summer position which then elongated to six years and then worked for Dutch National Tourism Board. So I spent twenty two years in in DMOs, not bad for a summer job. Made my way to Expedia a couple of years. When I studied marketing and modern languages, my dissertation right at the end, without knowing it, was the effectiveness of UK marketing for the Dutch tourism industry. And it turned out I worked for the Dutch industry six years later. So I don't know. Fate, Andreas, what do you think? Again, it's just one of those things with tourism. It has a very unique tale that folks just sort of fall into it without realizing. It. And then, of course, never leave. I mean, I'm definitely considered a lifer, so I'm sure both of you are as well. So it's a good company to be in. Yep. I started at United and then made my way over to Expedia. And Andy sounds like he had a summer job. He never quit. So <laughs> I think it's, it's great to bring the three of us together. Let's dive into why we're here. I think, you know, we want to talk about destination organizations. And I think from my outsider's perspective, it's certainly a concept that most understand, but likely don't understand the full nuance of what a really destination organization can be. So Let's talk about the structure of destination organizations. And obviously, they're structured differently across states, as well as, you know, structured differently globally. Can you provide just some clarification? What is a DMO? What is a visitor's bureau? What is a tourism board? Where do they intersect and how are they different? Sure. It's definitely a loaded question. And really, what we like to say at destination, which yeah has all these different acronyms, DMO, tourism board, CVB, Convention Visitors Bureau. Really what it comes down to is an entity that is responsible for a community's brand and promoting it, managing it, and stewarding it at the world stage for attention. So that can be a traditional, in the United States, what we call a 501c6 nonprofit for a community, but it can also be a parks department that has that role. Really, it's any entity in a community on its behalf has the brand. Its job is to try to bring that attention. And that attention, of course, one of the byproducts is not only tourism, but economic development, community vitality, and so on and so forth. That really is what we call kind of the centerpiece of a destination. Now, you can add on responsibilities to that. So particularly those who have that responsibility, but also are in charge of selling group business. So let's say your community has a large conference center, hotel vibrancy and whatnot. They have the added responsibility of selling what we call convention sales or business events as well on top of it. Again, though, we're still talking a community brand at the world stage and pushing it out there and try to get people to pay attention to that brand. That was very succinct. If you asked a person on the street and you said, hey, you know, who enables travel? I think you'd hear mostly suppliers, airlines, hotels, car rental companies. But really, DMOs can do a lot. Destination marketing organizations can do a lot to drive and enable travel. Talk about some of the most successful ways a DMO can really promote travel. Yeah, I like to use the analogy a lot that it's very similar to a gardener. I required a plot of land and quickly realized that even though I do nothing, stuff grows. But the downside to that, though, is a lot of stuff that grows I don't want to grow. I do think tourism as a byproduct is very similar to that. What a destination does is really help synergize and synthesize sales and marketing and promotion and advertising of the community and help bolster it to all its various suppliers and other channels. So very common, I mean, one of the most prominent assets a DMO owns and has is its website, its brand. We're thinking about going to a community. Let's actually check out its community's brand, or in that case, the website. But you see this across every type of medium now. I mean, podcast one, video, digital, so on and so forth, which really make it really the 
cornerstone or I would call the a steward again of that brand and pushing it out. So everyone has a chance to pay attention to it. And then again, when you garner attention, that's how you acquire tourism from it as part of it. I've noticed, and maybe that's something towards, you know, you started in 2005, 2006, a lot has changed in the world of DMO globally in that period. You know, I think in 2006, I don't think we were talking about death management, let alone stewardship. There was still very much about, you know, destination management or promotion marketing organizations and therefore pushing, pushing, pushing. But in those transitional years between 2000 and let's say six and where we are today, you touch on it, stewardship and management have, have really taken over from promotion. That thought, together with the fact that you still think that the website is the key point, because I think you're right, curation of content is what's happening, I think, more and more as the world fragments and consumption of content fragments. Your thoughts around that, Andres, in terms of where you see the next chapter of that evolution from the necessity to have a website to the necessity to curate the content on broader platforms. Sure. Let's dig in a little bit of philosophy here. You all understand the link between clean water to be healthy. You understand to be educated. You need teachers. You understand to get to your jobs, you need roads and bridges. Um, those yeah. are what we call common goods, crown goods in the UK, public goods, things that we deem necessary for society to benefit ourselves. Essentially what you call a community shared value, right? Things we know we need to invest in to better ourselves as really just part of the human condition. What I think has really changed is communities are starting to understand, just like those other common goods, when you choose not to invest in clean water, you see what happens, right? You know, our country in America has many instances what happens when we devalue infrastructure costs like that. The same thing is true of a brand, right? When you do not invest in it, whether that's website, marketing, manage it, staffing, whatever, you fall behind. Here's what's really changed to the pandemic. The number one currency in the world, it's not gas, it's not gold, it's not oil, although I will take any of them if you all got it. It really is what you call talent acquisition. We really are sort of in the talent wars here. If you think about what the pandemic did even before it, it accelerated this trend of no longer having to live by where you work. So from the perspective of desertization or a community, they now can compete again at this world stage for the greatest currency in the world, talent. And I think what communities are starting to recognize is saying, okay, we want that attention. How do we get that attention? Well, it starts with having a brand. So let's invest in a brand. And the way to invest in a brand is we need a destinationization who represents our community. That's really, I think, been the fundamental shift. I would say really it's been on this pathway since 9-11. And like everything, the pandemic just accelerated in a timeline unlike we've ever seen in human history the past two and a half, three years. And that's really what I think the next evolution or natural platform we're evolving to is destinationizations being again in that pantheon of other common goods, right? Community shared value. That's the cleanest and most concise answer I've had to that question in years. So thank you for that. You're phenomenal so far. Let's pivot a little bit from this question and kind of stay in the same space. But something I want to ask you about is over tourism. And, you know, this is a term that was coined five, six years ago from our friends at Skift. I think you have a unique perspective on, on over tourism. Who do you feel is responsible for over-tourism? And like, what are some ways the destination marketing organization can help support sustainability? Sure. Interesting. Obviously, we're recording this. Skift recently announced going away from it. That they're moving away yeah. from the term. Yes, yes. 
we don't really believe in the term over tourism. What we believe in is a failure in destination management. Again, I'll use that gardening example as well, right? Like I realize I'm looking at this plot of land in front of me. They're like, if I do nothing, a lot of stuff grows. So there's sunlight, grass, soil, but there's a lot of stuff that doesn't that grows that I don't want it to grow. Weeds, dandelions, stuff that my allergies go nuts for. My role in that is that I understand I have to manage the land, right? Tend to the land as part of it so that I'm able to accommodate what's in my boundaries and my resources. I think over tourism is seen very much the same way. One of the problems is just the term itself. It instantly weaponizes or penalizes tourists, right? It automatically puts it in a degrading fashion. And that's not nothing you want. Tourism for so many communities around the world is not only a viable investment, but it's one of the few things communities can do to invest in that doesn't cause you to have to tax the resident, right? Which is political suicide. No politician ever comes out there and says, you know what, budget's tight this year, let's just raise taxes. I mean, that just doesn't happen. So I think when we have to take away from that turn, but understand when management, that also means we have an active role in it. It means we can actually help guide the conversation, help, again, manage it, steward it, shepherd it as part of it. If you find yourself in a situation where management has not been the best and people see tourism in a negative sense, that is a role for desertization to step in and help, again, garden or tend the land so that they can manage again within those resources, but also educate the community on how viable tourism and tourists are to a community's vitality. One thing the pandemic taught us is what happens when tourism goes away. Like a lot of cities are in financial issues because of that investment is gone. So you can't simply just say over tourism and then not realize the ramifications of what happens when no tourists occur. Andreas, just on that, I work for two different DMOs, one which is 100% government funded, the other one is a private public partnership. Different models. In US, in predominantly, you've got DMOs that are funded or CVBs that are funded by bed tax. How do you balance that? The community, it needs to be a livable area that people are in, right? So that means the community with the, the visitor has to find that right balance. How does a CVB or DMO manage the balance between bed tax and therefore hotels that continue to add rooms, infrastructure being added to most, even Amsterdam incidentally is still building hotels on the outskirts of the city. So how do you balance when bed tax actually funds the local CVB DMO? Yeah, that's a tough nut to crack. I mean, I don't think we have definitive answers yet, but we're starting to finally see people question. I mean, one term I do also want to sort of wipe away with is the heads and beds, you know, because if that's all you say you do, then you are subject to being lumped into corporate welfare, which is not what we are. You know, um, people have to remind ourselves desertizations are largely nonprofits, which means they have purpose over profit. One of our other core, core philosophies around here is, you know, if you value something, you fund it. I think what you're starting to see desertizations do finally is articulate what we usually call the unusual suspects who benefit from the work when we do. Again, you're right. A lot of desertizations of primary funding comes through some sense of visitor's tax. But if you think about it, how many other people benefit from a positive brand? One thing, just go to the talent acquisition aspect here. So many of the communities have a need right now for highly skilled, highly educated workers. The issue is, is like, how do we get attention on the community to kind of want to live here or be here? We believe that those entities should be at the table and help support and fund destination organizations because they benefit one 
a community's brand does well. A good example, you know, you think about about three and a half years ago when Amazon was trying to put out their HQ2 bid and all these people were throwing, you know, mad tax tariffs and stuff to get it to come. But what Amazon finally assigned on was, well, we need a community that has a positive brand. So people who are highly educated will not only want to work here, but will like to live here as well. I don't see any reason why someone like Amazon, I'm not saying this would happen, but Amazon or other private entities shouldn't be at the table to help fund this entity. I really think funding is part of the equation. We've seen prominence in what we call tourism improvement districts as well, which will be can be funded from a hotelier, but doesn't mean they can't be funded from other districts as well. Arts and cultural, wine, cannabis, craft brewery, whatever. Anything that a community wants to value, they should be able to fund it. And I, I hope that's something in my lifetime we start to see more and more. Another one, point blank, is I also believe the government has a role to play in just simply providing funds out of the general fund sans visitor tax. No one bats an eye because the government funds clean water and that infrastructure. You want a brand, you want it at the world stage, you want to invest in economic development. Why not also provide investment towards destination promotion as well? We still got a long way to go, um, you know, to shake that, especially in the United States, which is so more prominently by the hotel architects, other parts of the world, you know, they're just tapped into the general fund. But I hope that's starting a shift we're starting to see is people understand, again, if you value something, you should fund it. I got a three-parter. I'm going to ask you one at a time, though. First one is, and this is baked out of my own curiosity from this discussion we're having is, sounds like there's multiple funding models, whether it's publicly funded, it's a partnership. Talk to me about the difference in the way the DMO operates based on their funding model. Is there a material difference or are these organizations operating pretty much similarly? It's just the funding is different. Good question. And it does vary from region to region. So let me just do the largest demographic of our membership, which is North American based, just to un- understand that. We're really talking about public dollars. So largely, we see deterrizations get a portion of the hotel tax that, again, goes through the government and is levied down, which makes it public dollars. So when you stay at a some type of occupancy, whether in some places have done regulation of it's a charge, it's a percent, short-term rental versus a traditional hotel. That money is collected, goes to the government, and the government usually has a contract with a local entity, the deterioration, which what percentage they get. And that varies. Some get 100, some get a 50 to 60, whatever it might be. So when you think about it, when the deterioration does well, that investment of tourism hopefully goes up and the deterioration gets more funded. Again, that's through a government entity. You're seeing another one, which is, again, what we call tourism improvement districts, where it's issued on behalf of a district itself. So most commonly we see hoteliers, again, where they are adding on an additional charge or percentage that this time goes directly to the deterioration, does not go through the government as part of it. Private investment varies in a couple of different ways. Most common, we see membership or partnership models where you know, the supplier side, your restaurateurs, your attractions, they pay for some level of investment back in the deterioration to have their restaurant or whatever their asset might be on the websites, the quick guides, the branding and stuff as part of it. The other parts of the world where it's just a cut from the government's budget, you know, now you're at the whim of politicians for how much it might be, might go up, might go down, but you're not tied to the same sort of trimmings of like, well, we have to always vie for hotel room nights to make this dollar go up. You're just at the mercy of the politicians, how they feel about tourism. Pretty some of the more common ones that we see across, especially the United States and North America. 
So you can easily see like how the funding model will change your actions as a DMO based on where you're going to be getting, going back to your heads and beds comment. If you're incentivized, just put heads in beds. It's a little bit easier to take your eye off the broader travel picture and, you know, actually what you want to create the destination to be. Yeah. And that was my comment about, I call the usual suspect. We understand if tourism does well, hoteliers and those suppliers are natural benefactors of it. They should be at the table to fund this. But my point was a little bit earlier was there's a lot of other folks who benefit from a positive brand. We should be bringing them to the table as well as considering funding. Because again, when a desertization does its job well and competes and participates and invests, it grows the whole pie of a community. So despite the differences in funding model, is there a challenge that's shared across DMOs currently? Oh, yeah. Relevancy. That's the number one, right? You asked me an early question. How would you describe what a desertization is? Well, how many people even know what it is? It will always come down to actually relevancy and engagement. Those are always the two things. You know, it's sad to say it took the pandemic in a lot of ways for people to wake up and realize like, oh, crap, like we have no tours this year. Like, what do we do to restart this? Like, oh, we got this thing called a desertization. Maybe we should invest in it. It always comes down to relevancy and engagement, making sure that people fundamentally understand what we do so they have the opportunity to value us and hopefully fund us but then also be engaged with us, that they understand that our number one customer, industrialization's number one customer is the resident of the community. Our role is to increase community vitality. It's just make sure that message is there and, and heard and understood. And we have a, a lot of room to catch up there. Again, the community shared value philosophy comment, right? You all know, I mean, since you're, we were kids, right? You drink water to be healthy, right? It's a fundamental sustaining life source. We understand to be safe, we need firefighters to put out fires. We got a lot of room to catch up with desertizations and articulating why desertization promotion is equally on that same pantheon of importance for us. So yeah, relevancy engagement and never ending. It's really advocacy what we're talking about. I think every new leader in the desertization space, it's that component of advocacy, which is articulates community and relevancy. That's going to be never ending. We just have a lot of ground to catch up to make up for lost time. Cool. I'll round up my trifecta. When you look into the, you know, the global space, North American space, which DMOs are doing that very well today? I have a lot of favorite desertizations that I think are doing the job that are sort of unnoticed. I mean, it's very easy to point out these super large budgeted desertizations do a great job and a lot of them do. But I always like to point out the average operating budget for our membership is majority under 3 million, which is not considerably very large. So you have a lot of these smaller destination organizations. I'll do one, Champaign-Urbana, Indiana, if you've ever been before, that small person operation, you know, you're talking less than 10 people and whatnot, but they're involved in every single decision as part of the community as a solution, as part of it. To me, that's what I we call a community shared value. Someone who's there is seen as part of the solution to help with stuff as aspect of it. I think really through the pandemic, we saw a lot of really unique scenarios of desertizations being put in positions that they had not been before, but are luckily we had a platform. I liked, I was a reference, uh, as a video visit Norfolk did where they articulated what they can't wait to get back when not only the pandemic ends, but what it means for having tourism and tourists as part of it. But there's so many communities now around the world who are engaging in something before that 
the pandemic has gotten their opportunities as part of it. That's hard to pick a favorite, and particularly they're ones that are doing it with far few pew and far few dollars than you imagine. Yeah, no, and I love that you picked some out that weren't, you know, the ones that you'd be thinking, like Norfolk in Virginia, Champaign, which is just down the road from me here in Chicago. Super interesting. I want to add, uh, Andreas, to you, your, your relevancy and engagement spot on, I think, as well. And I agree 100% with you. I think there's one other one which binds them. It's just not necessarily in there. The binding is not around the priority of it. And that's a sustainability discussion. I think anyone who plays in the, in the, the world of travel has got to have an opinion and, and, and make their thoughts heard around sustainability, broad subject matter, many subjects underneath that, whether it's ecology, environment, industry, employment, etc. So it's extremely broad. On, but I think that's what unites all these DMOs. It is just there is no tying into one strategy around that because, you know, I won't name the DMOs, but there's some which are driven so much by managing their, you know, the ADRs that, you know, sustainability is the furthest thing from their mind. When we look at the advancement going forward. And I, and I throw something out, I'm going to coin a phrase, which is, I don't think is a million miles away, but tourism quotas. So um, I'm sure you're aware of fishing quotas around the world. You can only fish them. Right. I don't think we're a million miles away from getting to a point. I know it's incredibly difficult to manage. And I'm putting it out there as you know, but I would love to hear your thoughts around tourism quotas uh, around the world to a point where, you know, it becomes manageable because if you look at it, Tourism continues to grow at 5.8% expected to grow, which is way higher than GDP in just in general, which is 2.8 globally. So it's going to be there. What are your thoughts around something that is as drastic as tourism quotas? It's definitely an interesting concept. And I don't, I agree with you that I don't think it's far to the realm of it occurring. I think I want to comment on your term, the, the GDP. I mean, GDP was invented post-World War II as a way to share information about commerce and particularly in America, which has been such a largely capitalistic society, we've seen what happens when all you do is chase growth, right? Chase GDP. And, and increased tourism is an output of that. But some of these assets, and particularly ones environmental and natural, do have limitations, physical environmental limitations. That's not something you can you know, outmarket per se or earn gain capacity for. My point is that if that is the scenario, the desertization still has a role to play and manage that. I want to use the term etiquette. I think that's something you're going to start seeing more and more that we call tourism etiquette. A couple of good examples. This is really seems like a lifetime ago when the biggest issue we had was just scooters, where communities are freaking out about e-scooters and whatnot. And one of the best examples I always love to point to was Portland, Oregon, was they had a really nice etiquette sheet on their website that said, if you're going to travel to our community and use an e-scooter, here is proper etiquette for visiting our community as relates to that. I can very much see again with the, the notion of, of those come to pass of quotas paired with etiquette. You know, if you're going to our visit our community during these times because of it, here is proper etiquette to enjoy it as part of it. I think it has to be a pairing. It can't just be quotas and then binary and then that's it. I think you have to pair it with some semblance of etiquette. And again, that's again, where I hope desertizations take a role in articulating that. So they understand why, if they have a quota, why this component of etiquette or why that's responsibility, I should say, is part of the equation as well. Yeah, I love that. And I think Iceland has done something very similar where they put it on the, the visitor to, you know, make the decision. The, 
the adult or the responsible decision in terms of how they treat the environment that they're in. So I, I, I think that's an absolutely spot on place to be with that. On the remaining on tourism in general, as I say, you know, it will continue, not just at GDP, and apologies for making it so crude, but, you know, if you look at just the total numbers around the world that will continue to travel, you know, there are rising middle classes in the emerging economies, although they're emerging pretty, pretty fast. What I'm also tending to see now, and perhaps with the more mature DMOs around the world, is that the chasing the high-value guests. So the interpretation is fewer people staying longer, spending more. So you're going to have everybody fighting over what they perceive as these high-value guests. Who, in your opinion, is going to continue to want to have the lower or mid-value guests? You know what? I'm not an economist, so it's kind of hard to answer that aspect of it. What I will articulate, though, regardless if you are high to low valued guests, you're still chasing the same thing, which is experience, right? Something fundamentally emotional to the human condition is that you are chasing something that you can't battle with logic. That's what we're sort of fundamentally arguing is how do we articulate and provide investment back on values-based decisions here? What I think will occur is, is again, if Everyone's going to be chasing that experience as part of it. And I think that leaves room for many destinations to put their values out there to, to garner that attention. So maybe it may not equate to high dollar investment. I do believe it will reoccur as high experience investment as part of it, though. That's a tough one to answer because I don't think any destination sets out to say, I'm targeting just these tiered travelers. Everyone's just trying to attract and experience, and how can we provide the best experience regardless of where you are socioeconomically? Yeah, I agree with that. I think in general, the experience is what people chase. However, it does come at some point to the economic impact that it leaves behind in the city or region. So um, yeah. it'd be interesting to watch this one as it, as it continues to develop around the world. Now, I was just going to follow up with the data that comes out of that. I mean, in terms of the utilization of data from a BMO perspective has changed over the years. I mean, it used to be just in terms of reporting. Oh, yes. Uh, the performance. What would you say are the biggest changes in data utilization and the type of data that uh, DMOs are looking for today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we firmly live in what I call the golden era of data acquisition for desertization. When I started my career, I mean, it's not that we were rudimentary. It wasn't like it was the dark ages, but, you know, it, it was in comparison to everything that's successful now through geolocation data to impact data to consumer spend data. It is incredible. What I say, though, has really changed, though, is understanding the responsibility of it. Data in itself is worthless without any sense of a story behind it. And we've really seen, I mean, really through the pandemic, how much our society has shifted from a logical society to an illogical one. And I don't mean that as a negative sense. I mean that as the opposite of logic, which is emotion. We make decisions based on emotions and story first, and then we find the logic, the data to back it up. Point being is that even though you might, we might have a cornucopia of data now, if your first articulation is data first and ROI first, you're already going to lose the argument for why you matter, why you engagement. And I think that's really something desertization's leaned into. I, I like to call it left brain data versus right brain data. Your left brain's your sequential, your linear, your math. So that is like, oh, our rising rev par, that is our room rent acquisition, that is our visitor spend. We've leaned so far left that we've forgotten to incorporate 
what it means for a sense of belonging to our community, what it means for a sense of, again, the, the right brain metric, story and motion. What I'm trying to articulate here is that I think we have so much data, it's now the added responsibility of how you articulate it, that I hope desertizations use the data to articulate story and emotion first. I'm not saying we can't, we, we can't go away from data, data and, R, and ROI, but just make sure, again, this is a one-two punch. Your first punch is your story and your emotion, and then you back it up with the ROI and data. So again, you articulate a sense of story, a belonging experience, and then it's like, hey, it sounds like you guys are doing a lot of great stuff. Can you back it up? Then you're like, oh yeah, here's our rev par. Here's our geolocation data. Here's our marketing ad value plan to the nth degree to back it up. That's what I think really is starting to change and um, starting to pivot a little bit is that not just pushing data out first, but actually articulating a, a proper narrative and story. So people are making those emotional decisions, connect first, and then you cement it back with your ROI statements and, and rev bar and stuff like that. So Shifting gears, but staying on the theme of stories, I think uh, something that we talked about a few weeks ago on a previous episode was the concept of what we're terming set jetting. So with traveling to a destination because you saw it on television or, you know, you wanted to experience it. What role does a DMO play in either bringing films, bringing TV shows to a city or publicizing that the show or TV was film was shot there? Yeah, set jetting, man. I have a toddler, so like I, I just can't fathom that world yet. I hope one yeah, day. Yeah, we just make up words here. It's okay. <laughs> but it'd be cool to be like, you know what? I'm just going to leave my life for a bit. I'm going to go there. Yeah, that's actually one of the really, I, I don't want to say we're post-pandemic yet. Um, and desertization have been asked themselves, you know, how do we rebuild in terms of departments and positions? And the one that I have seen repeatedly now is the investment in particularly film and music-based commissions, meaning a department solely dedicated to, you know, getting a film shot in their community. Obviously, one of the biggest and most prominent in the world right now is everything with Georgia and Atlanta. Like the House of the Mouse has moved from Florida up to Georgia for all things Disney, Star Wars, and that type of stuff. There's a desertization at the core of that who has a film commission whose role is to help book those films and to say, hey, this is a great place to film here. And, you know, of course, tax assets and things like that as part of it. But look at all the great assets we have to shoot uh, to get a sense of our culture and whatnot as part of it. I'm excited for that. I mean, I think, again, not just for the supplier side of hoteliers, but then saying, well, we can actually now start booking film events and film shootings and stuff like that as part of it. So they very much have a role to play in that. And I, I do expect the next five to 10 years, you're going to see more desertizations announcing a film commission or a sports commission department for exactly that asset. So I think when we, when we think about, you know, destination travel, and I'm going to use like White Lotus, people see like this amazing destination and they travel to it. They look it up while they're watching the show. That really, that kind of like desire to experience deeper what you're seeing on TV exists at that level at White Lotus, but it also exists like just to immerse yourself in the experience. So Baltimore, Maryland, one of the most popular TV shows, at least in the U.S., The Wire, was shot in Baltimore. You compare the scenes and settings of The Wire to White Lotus, they're starkly different. But I know that there is travel associated with both. So, you know, depending on what film or movie is shot, does it change the approach of the DMO and how they publicize it? Yeah, that's a great question. Certainly during my time at Visit Baltimore. And Aether, remember too, Baltimore in particular, it's not just the wire but prior to that it was actually the show homicide after the wire the most recent david simon one i'm blanking 
on the uh, gun task force ones as part of it. Just from my perspective, there's other communities that have what we call these flashpoints where your attention is instantly drawn to your community, but not always for the right reasons. Charlottesville is another great example of that. I think at the core of it is one thing is that desertizations have to lean into authenticity, right? You know, it's the, you can't really stand on a ground and saying, well, this is just all just fiction, right? Because the point of the matter is perception is reality and the way we articulate stuff now. What you see desertizations do, like Visit Baltimore, is they've really leaned into what, what authenticity means as part of them. And there are other communities going through this now as well. Not everyone has the benefit of a white lotus show. I think it's really trying to lean into your, your authenticity as part of it. Um, and understand that that's a battle of perception that will always be ongoing. I've got a litany of questions, Andreas, I'd love to ask you and continue to. We work closely with DI, obviously, and continue to do so from a media solutions point of view as well. There's so many trends that are happening in the world right now. Is there a key one that you think, let's, let's keep an eye on this particular trend? And you're obviously head of research and analytics that you have your finger on the pulse, I would say, in terms of what the trend in destination management is coming down the road. What is the one that really sticks out to you say, this is something which we need to be aware of? I'll go back to one of the earlier questions you asked me about, you know, what are the biggest challenges? And that is engagement and relevancy. Because of our funding model being so much prominently, again, around hotel room nights prior to that kind of stuff, you're finally starting to see destinations enter the foray of advocacy and engagement. So the trend that I'm trying to articulate is destinations are either learning to how to hire lobbyists or get involved politically trying to get more involved in what it means in terms of grassroots advocacy. So when you are faced with unwelcoming legislation or any type of flashpoint, you know, frankly, as part of it, you actually have some semblance of grassroots already embedded in your community to help to still articulate and push forward. I think that's one of the most prominent trends. Now, obviously, you can name other stuff of travel trends and things like that. But as it relates to destinationalizations, I really think you're starting to see this pivot in investment and advocacy and grassroots engagement from just staffing, just actually having someone on staff who's got the role of advocacy or, you know, community relations or engagement or whatnot as part of it. Um, that's all the way to, you know, hiring lobbyists and stuff like that. That's really one, I think, the cornerstone investments I'm seeing in trends, uh, particularly through the pandemic when, you know, you have to remember desertizations in particular, they were one of the last to get funded when, you know, shit really hit the fans. They were one of the very bottom end of it. That really articulated that we still had a long way to go to articulate why we are important and why we should be funded. And you're starting to see desertization start to say, okay, we can't be seen as the last of the table anymore. We really got to find ways to bolster, again, our advocacy and community engagement so that we are thought of first and not only the last to be invited to the table, but now we can actually set the table. So I think that's one of those prominent brands is people are starting to take up the role of saying, you know what, it's not just sales and marketing anymore. Advocacy has to be added to my repertoire. And you're starting to see that from staffing to departments to project management, all of them down the stack there. Hallelujah. Love it. Hey, listen, last one from me. Where are you going for the summer for uh, with your toddler just to get away? Good question. So uh, not the plug, but I do have a major event in the middle of my summer, which is our annual convention in July in Dallas. So I will 100% be in Dallas for over a week. But I'm actually a very family first individual. I do have a couple 
plan camping trips across uh, local in my area that are driving that I hope to get to with my family. And hopefully also some longer stay ones. I travel up and down the Northeast because I'm not a fan of the heat. So I like to try to go as far north as possible to avoid the heat and humidity. So hopefully you'll find me quite a bit of up latitude wise uh, through camping and other stuff outside of my family through the summer. I'm going to need some tips. I have a three and a half year old toddler and he wants to go camping and I'm a little nervous to venture past the backyard, but we're going to do a backyard excursion here soon. But that sounds like a great summer. This was really fun for me too. I was just say, if you want to learn more about what we do and the work we do at Destination International, just check us out at destinationsinternational.org. Andy, what a great interview with Andreas, right? I mean, really awesome insights. I wasn't planning on talking about the wire in this discussion. We fit a whole lot of topics in. It's just great to talk with someone who understands the day in and the day out what's needed for destination management. So much to learn from the conversation. Andy, we didn't get to hear about your summer getaway though. What do you have coming planned? Well, Baltimore is certainly on the list there. I'm off with my teenage son to New York, and here's a shameless plug incidentally for some research that's coming out on the path to purchase. Is I'm way against what you'd understand in terms of path to purchase. That changed my mind at the end hour. I'd, everything was planned to go to Barbados. I booked the flight. I had 24 hours cancellation period. And on the 18th hour, I canceled the flight and booked all three of us to go to New York instead of Barbados. Why? Because I checked the weather reports for the Caribbean in August. It didn't look great. So New York it became. That's my summer holiday. I'm looking forward to it. Andy, I, I do want to ask you a question because, you know, you're so much more ingrained in the DMO space than I am. What were some of the big takeaways that you had from this episode? Look, I think it's such a fast-moving subject matter, depending on where you are in the world. Who's financing? What are the mandates? So, you know, you have got all these subject matters around sustainability, about bed tax, about growth, about economic impact. It's such a diverse group of objectives and goals that the, these organizations have to achieve, and none are akin to each other very often, especially when you start looking at the financing of it. It's almost a full-time job to keep abreast of it and understand where they're heading with it. Two really far-ranging differences. You've got Canada one side that's desperately looking in terms of how they can become and maintain a sustainable uh, business out of tourism. And then Saudi Arabia on the other side, which is just entering into the race. Obviously, sustainability done there, but it's not at the highest level that you'd expect it to in comparison to those destinations that have been in there. So. It's, for me, it's, it continues to evolve. And, you know, when I joined the DMOs as it was then, it was a tourism board. We only wanted to grow. And if I speak to my boss at the time today, it's all changed. And it's all about how do we actually continue to be relevant in today's environment. And I think that's probably the key point is remaining relevant. Change is always present. It's present in travel in many ways. And that's what I took away as well. So. Really great episode. I uh, hope you have a great time in New York. It was awesome having you in the co-pilot seat. As I told you, you can press any of the buttons. Not many of them do anything. So thanks a lot for joining me. You're welcome anytime, my friend. Thank you, Brandon. Cheers. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Powering Travel Podcast. We have two more episodes left this season, but do not fret. We're not taking a summer break. We're going to take a couple weeks off and season three is right around the corner too. So we want to hear from you. What are the topics you want us to talk about? What do you want to share with us? 
you can do that at poweringtravel at expediagroup.com. That's right. Send us an email, one word, poweringtravel at expediagroup.com. And remember, rate and review. It helps people like you find our show. Send us your thoughts. Send us your comments. We're looking forward to the last two episodes of this season. They are right around the corner. Until then, have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. This is Powering Travel brought to you by Expedia Group.